What a blessing to hear this choir and in, and uh, the musicians. Alan, thanks so much for your leadership of worship. and I'm grateful to Dwayne for the invitation to be here. It's always fun to be at Tallawood and to enjoy uh, the uh, at-home feeling that I have here. Thank you so much for that. Uh, thanks for your support of HBU. We have... Uh, we have so many, uh, quite a few faculty and staff, of course, uh, who worship here, and uh, I'm sure you know that we have uh, the maximum number of uh, trustees from a given church, according to Baptist rules. Heaven forbid that you disobey a Baptist rule. Uh, that uh, we have the maximum number that you can have from a given local church on our board of trustees. I know it's the maximum number because I uh, mentioned to the nominating committee uh, someone from Tallywood recently to serve on our board and was told that would be six. And so that would be above the sacrosanct number of five. And so, uh, but, uh, you know, thanks to uh, uh, the five uh, trustees we have. I hope I can remember Pat Getch and Jack Carlson and Grady Randall and Bob Rule and Max Grigsby uh, are our five uh, trustees. Uh, from from the church, so uh, in so many ways uh, you support uh, us, and uh, and we're grateful. The uh, I, I'd like for you to turn uh, to to Romans nine, if you would, and and that will at least be a, a point of departure for um, uh, for the series of texts that I want to use this morning. I I hope you have a New Testament with you, or. Um, well, you might not have to look up every text. I'll try to quote a few of them here and there and uh, read from several of them. Um, I do have one Old Testament text that I hope to get to. Uh, it's at the end of the sermon, though, so it's, it's, it's possible that I won't get there. Uh, so, I mean, I'll get to an end, I promise that, but it may not, it, it may not be the planned end. Uh, it's, it's a great text out of Jeremiah, and maybe I should just tell you now what it's about so you'll, uh, you'll know when I'm getting close to the end. Uh, the, um, Jeremiah 32, uh, it, has a, it has in some ways a, a patriotic theme to it, although in a, in a very sad way. Patriotism is, of course, our, our love of our, of our country, our love of our own, uh, you know, the word patriot comes from the word pater or patria, father, fatherland, and so... Uh, every nation uh, on earth feels an attachment to its own uh, city and state and, and nation. And that's proper because in the providence of God, each of us is placed in a certain spot and we have a sphere of responsibility and we should uh, be loyal uh, to that uh, structure, those peoples, uh, the, the social structures and the governmental structures that we share. And in Romans 13, which is such a rich part of the uh, of the responsive reading this morning tells us that we should have a loyalty to the established authorities. And Paul is thinking of established uh, authorities that are given by God. Paul himself enjoyed the, the privileges given by the uh, Pax Romana, uh, such as it was, uh, the stability, uh, the governing stability under which he operated, the, the Roman roads, the, the social stabilities, uh, the, uh, the freedom of, uh, of the Jews to worship uh, as they, as they uh, did in spite of the official Roman uh, religions. The Jews were uh, permitted certain freedoms and they had their synagogue worship throughout the Roman Empire. And, 
And, uh, and Paul took advantage of that. He, he used the Roman roads and the Roman stability and, and the peace, and he prayed that uh, Christians should, uh, should uh, submit to the established authorities by God. Uh, and he went to those synagogues and, and used that. He, he would read the Jewish scriptures and from those scriptures preach the message of Jesus Christ. And, and thus uh, Paul uh, told Christians uh, to, uh, to obey the authorities because they are, they are messengers angels, ministers of God to, uh, for their basic function, to, to carry out the, uh, the avenging function of God. It's an interesting uh, phrase, but that's, uh, that's the work of God that the state does. It, uh, it, it praises those who do what is right and it punishes evildoers. And that's, the, that's kind of a foundational covenant uh, for any social structure. Uh, and uh, and thus we we can we celebrate that well th- that's the proper kind of patriotism uh, it, Paul refers to it in Romans nine he refers to it in Romans thirteen uh, but the, in Jeremiah Jeremiah has been uh, by by the time you get to Jeremiah thirty two he's been thrown into a pit uh, Jeremiah has prophesied destruction upon the nation he has said uh, that uh, the nation has violated the laws of God he's been preaching throughout his his career uh, Jeremiah a very long book and these oracles repeatedly. Uh, uh, pronounce the judgment of God. He encourages uh, Israel to repent, but finally reaches a point where he sees that Israel is not going to repent. Uh, he says that the Babylonians will overtake them. Uh, in fact, and even, even in one famous sermon, he declares that the temple itself will be destroyed. Uh, this, of course, is absolute uh, sort of patriotic heresy to think that, uh, that God would allow his, uh, his, his sacred... Uh, uh, building an edifice to, to be destroyed, and Jeremiah obviously is not uh, doesn't love his his nation. If he thinks the temple will be destroyed, uh, and the other nations, uh, the Babylonians will overtake them. The Babylonians are godless, as Habakkuk uh, says. And um, how could how could it possibly how could it possibly be? Well, Jeremiah predicts uh, the fall of Jerusalem. He predicts the destruction of the temple, and he is thrown into a pit. And it's even said that he's in this pit. You know, the others come to him and say, Jeremiah, you know, uh, why do you always prophesy doom? In effect, you know, why can't you say something nice? Uh, and Jeremiah's obligation is not to say things necessarily that are nice or pleasant, but to speak the truth as God speaks the truth to him. And so uh, he's in that pit and um, he's pronounced doom and gloom, the coming judgment of God. And then one day, uh, something very strange happens. In the midst of that gloom, uh, his cousin comes to him. And Jeremiah does something very unusual in the midst of the prophesied doom of, of, uh, of Israel. And that's what I'll come back to. Um, because it's, there's a lesson for, for how we should live in a world which is under the wrath of God. Uh, that's, the idea of the wrath of God is not a very popular doctrine anymore, uh, but of course popularity, we, we, uh, you know, we, we take a lot of polls in our nation, but uh, you know, the polls don't tell us what the proper doctrines are. They try to, uh, but they, uh, they don't actually you know, tell us what we are to believe. Um, the doctrine of the wrath of God is, is simply this. When we say the wrath of God or the anger of God, we're referring to, to God's active displeasure Sometimes it can be a passive displeasure whereby simply consequences come to pass. But it's typically the active displeasure of God uh, at those who rebel against him as creator, 
uh, those who rebel against him, we ought to worship him because he's the one true creator God, uh, Romans 1, 18 and following. Uh, against him, his ways, his laws, his commandments, and especially his, his will as revealed through the one who is the, is the summation of all of God's plan and purposes, his creative activity, his redemptive activity, and his moral activity. Uh, all of that is revealed through the man, Jesus Christ, who is the, the, the sum and substance of the very character and nature of God, the everlasting divine Son of God, and the very revelation of what true humanity ought to be, and the one through whom God made the worlds, and the one unto whom uh, all of history will be, and before whom all of history will be consummated. And so God's, uh, God's wrath, it, it means that he has a displeasure. A displeasure that he expresses in various ways upon those who rebel against the one true creator God. Uh, it's, it's a doctrine that's clearly taught in Scripture, uh, though we often don't like it. If, if you think about it for just a little bit, it makes complete sense. We live in a universe which clearly has a kind of sense of moral accountability built into the very structure of the universe. Even though there are those exceptions, like, and thus the, the book of Job or some of the lament psalms and so on, where injustice does prevail, there is nonetheless a kind of just uh, moral cause and consequence built into the fabric of the universe. It's, it's, it's true. If, if you are a person of integrity, if you live faithfully and honorably, compassionately, if you work hard, if you, if you express uh, your work as unto God and live a life of discipline, you will, by and large, it is, it is typical, as the Proverbs say, that you will have a life of, uh, of joy, of blessing, of peace, and, and a family structure and, and so on that, that's, uh, that's honorable. For those who live uh, treacherously, who break their oaths and their covenants, who live without integrity, who rob and lie and cheat and steal and live unfaithfully and live lazy lives, theirs is a life of typically of, of doom and of, and of misery. And uh, th that's built into the fabric uh, of the universe. And so why should it surprise us then when, if, if, at the, if, if at the end of the age there is not also a kind of ultimate moral accountability, an ultimate uh, set of consequences? Uh, for for the way we have lived, it, it's consistent with the with everything that I bet everyone in this room believes about human nature, namely that we have been given somehow the gift of freedom, so that we we are able to make true and real uh, voluntary choices. Certainly within within the limits of all the uh, you know social and political and, and genetic structures that we have, nonetheless there is a capacity for freedom for for free choices, and and if we're going to if we truly have freedom, then we must, we must live with those consequences. In fact, uh, there are some who have argued, uh, C.S. Lewis among them, uh, in a sense, uh, Dante another, that, that, uh, that hell may well be God's final um, gift in the sense that he, he honors the choice that we have made. He does not override the freedom that we have exercised. Or as Lewis, I'll sort of paraphrase, puts it in, in the problem of pain in the chapter on hell. He says, when man says, uh, leave me alone, that may well be precisely what he does. He leaves us alone. In Scripture, at least in the New Testament, you, you get various uh, images of hell and of the, of, the, of the destruction of the age to come. Uh, and of the wrath of God, uh, sometimes in the book of Revelation particularly, you get, a, you get references to a lake of fire, and you get this fiery image. You, most of the time, though, the image, and you get this in Revelation as well, the image of hell is an image of darkness where there is no light. 
where there is, uh, as a consequence of this outer darkness and aloneness, this complete separation and alienation, there is weeping and wailing. If you've ever had in your life a panicked moment, I have. If you've ever had a panicked moment of claustrophobia, whereby it is dark and you think you're smothering and you can't see and you panic. Hell is described more in those terms than any other I know. And it's not, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's the darkest kind of darkness that can possibly be imagined. Uh, it, it's, it's part of the teaching of the New Testament. Paul's, Paul's deepest patriotic feelings, Romans 9, his deepest patriotic feelings are based upon this, the deep fear and anxiety and pain that he feels for Israel, his kinsmen according to the flesh. The deep longing that he feels and the pain that he feels is because he feels they are under the judgment of God. And he feels that they will go into, an, not all, but many, a, a, a pleroma, he calls it, a, a large number of them uh, at that point in, in history, though he believes that a fullness later in history will have the veil taken away and they'll believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, Romans 11. But at this point in his life, he believes that his kinsmen, according to the flesh, have a certain veil on them. They can't understand Moses and the, and the prophets. They don't understand the scriptures. They certainly had, had, did not recognize their Messiah when their Messiah came to them. And they rejected the Messiah. And even though, even though God has used their disobedience to cause the gospel to go to Gentiles, and Paul is, is, is part of that, that sovereign, mysterious, merciful activity of God, whereby Jewish rejection, Romans 9, 10, 11, Jewish rejection means the gospel goes to the Gentiles and brings about Gentiles obedience uh, to the gospel, he nonetheless believes that, uh, that his kinsmen, according to the flesh, are responsible, and they're under this alienation. And he says in Romans, he says in Romans 9, I'm telling the truth. Notice how many times he, he, he sort of says, I'm telling the truth. He says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience is bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. He's, he's avowing many times over that what he is about to tell us is of the profoundest uh, moment of, of integrity and, and depth of his soul. Uh, I have a great sorrow, verse 2, and an unceasing grief in my heart. This constant, this constant depth of, of wailing and grief. And here's, here's the reason. For I could wish, it's literally, I was praying if it were possible, I have been praying that I myself could be accursed, separated from Christ. He's referring to the everlasting perdition. I, I was praying that I myself could be accursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption, the sons, etc., the covenants, the promises, from whom is the Christ who is over all God, blessed forever. But they've rejected him. They're under this wrath of God. And Paul thus has this depth and, 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 and profundity of, of grief and an unceasing wailing in his mind and heart. Uh, because he wishes, if it were possible, he could be accursed in their place. There's a depth of... Of feeling for one's kinsman there. 
And yes, it is Israel. And yes, Israel occupies a special place in salvation history. But, but having said that and, and, and given to Israel this special place in the plan and purpose of God, uh, a place which is consummated in the coming of Christ, nonetheless, Paul, as I mentioned earlier, tells us in Romans 13 that we all have a place in the divine uh, locations of history and that we are to submit to the governing authorities. And Paul enjoys, again, as I said, those freedoms which he, which he receives there. And, and this, Paul wishes, if it were possible, that he could be a kind of substitute for the anger of God that is upon the disobedience of those whom he loves so deeply. This presupposition that there is an anger of God, it's not a very popular doctrine anymore. You know, we used to talk about the doctrines of heaven and hell. Now it's just more heaven. Uh, no one wants to believe in hell anymore. I've often thought that while hell is not the most important doctrine in Scripture, in fact, it's impossible probably to talk about the most important doctrine because all of the major doctrines have a certain uh, integrative uh, connectivity with one another and you drop one of them out and you, you, you dis... Uh, join the others and they, they become dislocated. But I, I, I do think of the, the doctrine of judgment as a kind of measuring stick for, um, for where your theology might be going. Uh, how you think about the, the judgment of God uh, affects how you think about God himself, the very character of God. Uh, you know, it, it, once you drop the notion of, of, of the possibility that God could, could actually exact consequences from us for our behavior and for the ways that we have rebelled against him, we're really perhaps no longer talking about the Father God anymore. We may be talking about Grandfather God, but not the Father God of the Bible. Your, 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 your ideas of, of, uh, of the age to come and judgment and, and the possibility of, of, the, of the wrath of God and alienation from God... Uh, it says something about, it begins to affect how we think about the very character of God. It, it, says, it says what we think about salvation itself. Salvation in Scripture is salvation from what? Saved from what? Well, the, the, the fabric of, of New Testament theology is that, is, that, is that we are saved from somehow the, you know, saved from the fact that this is a fallen universe. And that the wrath of God is upon this, this fallen creation now because of human rebellion. And the wrath of God upon us. And that, save from the fact that, that one day there will be this exacting, this rendering that will take place. Save from the wrath of God. Save from sin and death and hell. In, in, in modern uh, theology, we're, we, 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 you know, we can't as, as easily talk about, you know, hell and perdition anymore because people, you know, it's, it's either offensive or the preachers don't believe it or it's, it's embarrassing or something. And, uh, and so we, we don't talk about it anymore as much. And so, so we, we, we make an interesting shift. We start talking about all the things that, that actually are on a spectrum with hell. But they, they sort of, we translate it backwards a little bit. We talk about, well, we're saved from our psychological dysfunctions. Or we're saved from, you know, our, our misery. Or we're saved from... And, and by the way, and, and those, are, those are reflections of the brokenness that we have. They're reflections of the, of the displeasure of God that's upon this present evil age. But, but it, you know, it's, it's as if we, well, you know, we're like the, like the children who, who don't know, well, to put it in a positive way, like the little boy who, who thinks that chocolate candy is the best thing that he's ever had. And we have no ability to think about anything beyond chocolate candy. And, and when he's eight years old and someone gives him a piece of chocolate candy, he says, this is the greatest thing in the world. And someone says, oh, but, you know, one day, you know, you're going to discover girls. 
And I promise you that one day there's going to be something you're going to want even more than this chocolate candy. And he says, you're crazy. Uh, just, you know, hand me another stick of uh, chocolate candy. Well, in, 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 you know, we're like children who don't understand the depths, uh, you know, what, what's out at the end of the spectrum of our joys or of our miseries. C.S. Lewis said in, in The Weight of Glory that every person we meet will one day be either a creature of such enormous beauty. Alan said, you know, he, he had a misspeak there where he said, you know, we're going to greet the visitors, you know, worship them, I mean, welcome them. You know, C.S. Lewis said that in, in The Weight of Glory, he said, he said, imagine that every person you meet will one day either be a person of such enormous beauty and majesty and splendor that if you were to see them today in your present form and they in their future form, you would be tempted to fall down and worship them. Or they will be creatures of such misery and hideous ugliness that if you were to see them in their monstrous forms of the future today, you would run screaming from the room in fear. Oh, we don't talk about these things anymore. It's too old-fashioned, isn't it? But what if... What if the scriptures really teach this sort of thing? I know it's easy to ignore and, and we'd rather ignore it and we'd all rather not talk about it, but, but what, what can we possibly suppose? Listen, let me just read a few scriptures. You, you don't have to turn to these. I'll give you the references. I'm, these are just out of Matthew. I just culled a few. I've been reading Matthew lately and, and I just culled a few out of Matthew. Uh, and I got tired and quit. Uh, uh, but... And these, this, is just the, this is just maybe a, oh, I'm just going to guess and say, you know, a tenth of what you could find in Matthew alone. Matthew 5, 29 to 30. Just passages which suggest, it's, it's just in the fabric of Jesus' comments. It's not necessarily teaching a doctrine of hell or judgment, but it's the assumption of it. Matthew 5, 29, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out. This is this, is this Semitic hyperbole, you know, it's so outrageous is, is moral rejection of the will and ways of God that we, we ought to be so morally outraged at ourselves. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. Not literally, children, but it's, it's so outrageous. For it's better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into the Gehenna of fire. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to go into hell. 7, 13 uh, through 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, the way is broad that leads to destruction. He's talking about the eternal uh, destruction. And... Uh, Few there be who find it. Uh, 7.21, uh, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? By the way, on that day is the great day of judgment. That day, it's the day of the Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name? Your name cast out demons, your name perform many miracles, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. 8.11. Uh, in 12, I say to you that many shall come. Uh, he's talking about now the, the, the centurion who, who, whose child was healed. And, and uh, Jesus says, uh, his, uh, 8, 11, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven and will be amazed at what has happened here. But the sons of the kingdom, who, meaning the, the, 
the people of his generation, uh, Israelites who should have known better. The sons of the kingdom shall be cast into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 10, uh, 10, 14. Whoever does not receive you nor your words, he's sending out the the twelve on their commissioned assignment to preach throughout the, the villages of Israel. Whoever does not receive you, uh, the 1014, nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake off the dust of your feet. Truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city which rejects the testimony of Jesus. 10, uh, 1027. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. What you hear whisper in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in the Gehenna of fire. Um, that's so many. Uh, 1122. Um, Nevertheless, I say to you, he's talking about Bethsaida and Chorazin, where their preaching had been done. When their preaching is done, the twelve come back and they give a report. He says, uh, 1122, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for Chorazin or Bethsaida. 1231, therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever shall speak against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. These, these are... These are sobering words. They're not as commonly offered up in our, you know, therapeutic style of positive preaching. But it, but it is reflective of the teaching of Jesus. And I offered I offered just a few of these. The list goes on. I'll stop. I'll stop there. Uh, Romans one, but it's not just in the teachings of Jesus. Romans one eighteen for the wrath of God. And here he's speaking now of the wrath of God from the beginning of creation because of human rebellion. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in their ungodliness. For that which is known about God is evident among them, for God may be evident to them. Uh, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly uh, seen through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Therefore, 24, God gave them over. 26, for this reason, God gave them over because of their rebellion to degrading passions so they become even worse. Verse Romans 1, 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind so that now they go from bad to worse, from rebellion to greater expressions of their rebellion and human depravity. The wrath of God is over the created order. It's the fallout of the fall. Uh, the opening chapters of Genesis, whatever you make of them, and there's all kinds of controversy over uh, how they are to be you know, uh, integrated scientifically with uh, this and that. But here, the, the overwhelming message is this. The one good creator God has made all things. Human beings have been made in his image, and they have rebelled against him, and there is a consequence. They cannot reenter the garden. The garden has been is guarded by an angel with a flaming sword, and there is this, this ongoing a consequence. This rebellion has produced an, an ongoing wrath of God. It's, things are not now the way they were. This wrath of God is, is being poured out upon, upon the created order. Romans uh, 2. Uh, 
4. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, a day of revelation of the, of the righteous, of the wrath and, and judgment of God. Uh, 2.7, Romans 2.7, To those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, God will give eternal life. To those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. Oh, the truth, I think there's a reference to the gospel. But obey unrighteousness, he will give wrath and indignation. 2.9, there will be tribulation. Keep that word tribulation in your mind. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. Where tribulation is this broad term that refers, again, to this wrath of God that is, is, is going at the end of the age to be poured out upon all those who have rejected him and his way, his will. And uh, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll read you one more text. Uh, it's not very popular. It's not widely used. It's in Second Thessalonians. But it's, it's one of the earliest some argue this may have been the earliest letter Paul wrote. I don't think that, but it's among the earliest. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6. It is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be gloried, glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. These are, these are harsh words. It's easy to read you know, a great collection of our favorite scriptures. We ought constantly to, as it were, rebaptize our minds with texts that are not as familiar or maybe not as desirable or not as welcoming to our thoughts and our minds. What we think about God and the character of God, what we think about the teachings of Jesus, the urgency we have for moral obedience, the urgency that we have to preach the gospel, the urgency that we have to, to be citizens of faithfulness, the urgency that we have to teach our children, the the, the, the truth of the character of God and what God is going to do in the future itself, all of these things may well be at stake. Paul has an unceasing grief in his heart for his kinsmen according to the flesh. So why should, why should a Christian minister preaching to Christians, those who know God through Jesus Christ, why should we bother to think about this sort of doctrine? Because one, I do think it corrects our minds. Our minds are in constant need of corrective from the full counsel of Scripture about the character of the God with whom we have to do. It supplies urgency to our, to our, our, our moral behavior. It supplies urgency to our preaching. But also, let me, let me point out, there is a wrath of God, a tribulation, that is going on even in the present, ever since the, 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 the fall there is a tribulation. It, it doesn't mean just persecution for being a Christian, but it means, it means physical pain. It means Paul in, in 2 Corinthians 11 refers to dangers in the rivers, dangers on the highways, dangers from robbers, sleepless nights. And besides, he says, there's the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. He refers to pressures physical and external. Some of them come from social uh, situations whereby society is, merely, is, is simply unstable, and that's part of the tribulation that he experiences. He also uses the word affliction. 
And, and it can mean, again, persecution, but it can mean all those other kinds of troubles. The idea is that there is, there is this wrath of God that's being presented. But Scripture also teaches that this wrath of God has a merciful, at least initially, it has a very merciful purpose. That's why in the book of Revelation, when the, when the seals and the, and the trumpets are, 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 are cut and then, and, then, uh, and then blown, they are partial judgments. A third of the fresh water, a third of the salt water, a third of some of the vegetation, a third of humankind, because these are warnings. The same is true, for example, you get this similar pattern in, in uh, Luke 13, uh, whereby the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Lord, uh, those men, uh, those, those rebels whose, whose blood, uh, when Pilate killed them brutally, uh, it's in Josephus as well, th- th- those, those men, those Galileans whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices, they were offering this, their rebellion as unto the Lord God, and they thought by their military zeal they were doing the right thing, and and, and Pilate brutally killed them, and he took their religious sacrifices, and he took their blood and put it in there. The disciples say, Lord, were these worse men than anyone else? And Jesus said, no, no. But, I'll tell you this, unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. And then Jesus takes a, an example that they don't ask him. He says, he says, well, do you suppose that those 18 men on whom the Tower of Siloam fell... A freakish accident. The tower in Siloam, it just fell over and people were killed. Do you suppose that they were worse culprits than anyone else in Jerusalem that day? I suppose we could have asked the question about Katrina or Rita or Andrew or, or Carla or Allison. We could ask the question about tsunamis, the question about, about construction accidents and bridges that fall and cars, people plummet to their death. Freakish accidents. Do we suppose that somehow, you know, when one person is saved and one person's not, that the ones who are destroyed and killed, that they're worse than anybody else? No, no. But there is a lesson. These are warnings. They're warnings. They're signs. I tell you, unless you repent, this is like the great cataclysm at the end of the age when all the bridges will collapse and all the waters from heaven will be poured out and the floods will, will come up and the, and the one who has not heeded the message of Jesus Christ, great will be the destruction of the house that is not built upon the rock but is rather built upon the shifting sands of culture and, and disobedience. There, there is a wrath that's being experienced, but, but Paul says, you know, it, 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 has, it has a merciful goal. It's a warning. And so as Christians, you know, we, we should be reminded. Paul, Paul is very direct in Romans 5 when he says, you know, Romans 5, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have. Don't let this message, I, you know, I can't, you know, I promise you I won't go by without referring to the mercies of God. You know, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained our access by the grace of God into this faith relationship in which we stand. And we rejoice, we anticipate the resurrection future. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. But not only this, Paul says, we also rejoice in our tribulations. It's the same word he used in, in Romans 2 to refer there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil to the Jew first and also the Greek. Same word he uses in, in Romans 8 to refer to tribulation. What can separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, peril, famine, nakedness, sword. No, nothing can separate us. None of the social disasters, not poverty, not war, not, not physical disaster, not dangers and rivers, not persecution, nothing. All of the powers of darkness that throw their best at us. They cannot separate us from the power of God revealed through Jesus Christ. So Paul says, therefore, not only this, but we also rejoice even in our tribulations, knowing 
It's the knowing of faith. Knowing, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. That's the key word that typically in Scripture follows the idea of persecution or follows uh, trouble or affliction or, or tribulation. It's perseverance. In the hour of trouble, we, we still believe. In the hour of trouble, we don't give in. In the hour of trouble, we think, oh, you know, it's just going to get better. You know, I, I had times in my life, I got some notes from some people. I had a note from a college professor, one, a university president one time, and it was in some really tough days. And uh, this university president wrote me a note and said, this too shall pass, you know. And he said, it'll soon be over. And I remember thinking, well, you know, it's got to be, things got to get better tomorrow. And they didn't, they got worse. And I remember thinking, well, it'll get better, you know, next month. And it didn't, it got worse. And I thought, well, it'll be better next year. And it didn't, it got worse. You know, there are just, you know, there are just times when it just, things go from bad to worse and from worse to worser. And kids, I know that's not good grammar, so don't be writing that one down. Uh, but you know, it, there are injustices. There are injustices. There are there are just problems, or there are things that are of our own sin, our own fault, our own making. And sometimes it's just the sludge of the fall. But tribulation brings about perseverance. That's the responsibility. That's the one thing we can do. It's by faith we trust Him, and we don't give in. We don't give up. Jeremiah, in prison, he had pronounced doom upon the nation, the destruction of the nation, of the city Jerusalem, and of the temple of God. And he was politically on the outs because he just didn't say nice things about the king. Why do you always prophesy against Zedekiah? The other prophets say. Can't you say something nice? But then the Lord told him this would happen. And when it happened, he knew it was of the Lord. His cousin came to him. And it happened just as he had, apparently, in a dream or a vision or an inner oracle. And his cousin comes to him. And the cousin says, Jeremiah, there is a piece of property in the family for which you have the right of redemption. That is, it's yours to buy, so it stays within the family. Buy it, Jeremiah. Jeremiah called witnesses. He had to call, you know, people there to the prison. But he called witnesses. And, el and certain elders were all around, and all that he could gather around. And he bought the piece of property, the right of redemption, uh, through his cousin. And he paid out the full price. He didn't pay a discounted price. You know, when everything's going to, to perdition in a handbasket, then the prices go down. He paid the full price. And he made two copies of the deed, and he had all the witnesses, and they signed it. He had the public cop the open copy and the, and the private copy. And he told his secretary, Baruch, take these two copies and put them in an earthen jar. And this is the guy who just said the whole thing's about to be destroyed. And he buys a piece of property. And he has a seal. But it's a testimony. It's a witness. Because then he gives the next prophecy. For the Lord will, though he is angry with his people... He will gather us again to himself. He will bring Israel back in the great exile, return from exile. He prophesies the return from exile, which was impossible. When a nation scattered, it's destroyed, it's gone. But he prophesies they'll actually come back. He prophesies that there will be a new covenant, a covenant of the heart, and I will write my laws upon your hearts. And that's the very new covenant language of Jeremiah 32 and Jeremiah 33 that's used in the New Testament. It's used in Romans 2. It's used in the Last Supper when our Lord says, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
Second Corinthians three, it's the new covenant of the Spirit instead of the, instead of the covenant, the old covenant of the law. Jeremiah said, "Seal it up," because the point is, God is faithful. In the midst of a world where there is injustice, where things aren't going right, where things aren't fair, where, where it seems that there is immor- immorality and failure and loss all about us, even in a world where perhaps the Christian faith may come under severe pressure and challenge, we have been told to be instruments of peace, instruments of hope in the sovereign God who will accomplish His purposes. We're told by, in Second Peter in the last days there will be mockers and scoffers who say, where is the promise of His coming? Where is this God of yours? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the sovereign Lord. The Christian faith is true. Come what may, in your life, my life, our nation, serve him. Be faithful. Don't give in and don't give up. Be a beacon of hope in a world that is under the wrath of God. Oh, Lord, we pray that we would be instruments of your peace and of your mercy. We thank you that we have found your mercy, Father, through Jesus Christ. Father, we confess that we are sinners. We confess, Father, from the heart that we have rebelled often against you. But we pray that you would forgive our rebellion, cleanse our hearts and minds by your Spirit, Set us, set us anew on paths of obedience and integrity and faithfulness. And Father, we appeal to you through Jesus Christ, the name above every name, that now and at the end of the age, you save us, redeem us, take us into your heavenly kingdom. We trust you for this, Father. And we thank you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.